Hi everybody, I'm Chair McGuire from the NHL on NBC. Usually I'm inside the glass, but today I'm inside the truck with Chop and Steve-O. Bring it. You're going inside the truck. Sports television production revealed. How it goes from the TV mobile to your screen. The personalities, the stories, the raw excitement. Here are Steve Lansky and Paul Hemming. I'm Steve Lansky. I've produced Hockey Night in Canada, the CFL on CBC, including the 1989 Grey Cup, baseball, basketball, golf. I've produced the Calgary Stampede for CBC Network Sports, and I've worked at the Olympic Winter Games in Norway. I am the luckiest guy on the face of the earth. And I'm Paul Hemming. I've been a live sports TV director for over 20 years. I've directed the NHL, CFL, and World Juniors for TSN, the NHL and Hockey Night in Canada for Sportsnet, San Jose Sharks for NBC Sports California, and currently I'm the broadcast director for the Carolina Hurricanes on Fox Sports Carolinas. Okay, time out, time out, time out. Before we even start, what the hell is a chop? Why is Pierre Maguire <laughs> calling you chop? Well, you know, Steve, uh, sports television is, is really an extension of, of sports as well. And, and like sports, everyone in sports gets a nickname. Nobody ever is called by their real name. I got that nickname uh, right at actually the beginning of my career. It was my very first road trip with the NHL on TSN. It was to New York City. It was game day at our Manhattan hotel. John Wells of TSN, who was our traveling host at the time, at the breakfast meeting, Wellsy was famous for having nicknames for everybody. Uh, when John would host in the studio, if he would, he'd always use pencil. And if he would snap his pencil, there was one guy that worked on in the studio crew that brought him his new pencil immediately fresh sharpened pencil. His nickname was Snapper. So I got mine chopper right out of the way, right out of the gate. First breakfast meeting. John says, well, this is, you know, kid, you got to have a nickname. So that's where I got it. And now there's nobody in the sports TV world that knows me by my real name. Uh, I'm only known as chopper or chop. Uh, in fact, it's so bad that I've had people walk into the TV truck and ask me if Paul Hemming is available. So uh, that's my handle or, or call sign, uh, as my buddies Sauce and Slogger like to say. Do we, do we find out who Sauce and Slogger are? That's a little shout out to my fighter pilot buddies with the Canadian Air Force 425 Squadron, CFB, Baggettville, Quebec. Best nickname of anybody ever in TV. Go. Best one? Um, yeah. I mean, most of them are so boring, right? It's, th th there's a standard. There's a formula. If your name is, is Greg Millen, you become Millsy because you just take the first four letters of your last name and add an S-Y or an E-R, right? Is this a book or a pamphlet or is this just an understood method? It's from, it's, as soon as you start playing hockey at the atom level, that's, I think that's where it comes from. You know, you're nine years old or five years old and, and that's it. Like you can know a guy's nickname without knowing it. All you have to do is just take the first four letters of his name and add it's either an E-R or an S-Y or it could be both. So in terms of like really creative ones, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I would think probably number 99 had the best one, the great one. I mean, who wouldn't want to be called the great one? And it, it was, and it was intelligent too, because it sort of went with great Gretzky, like great Gatsby, but it wasn't just a simple add an ER and SY. You bring up a good point. I'm not a big fan of the media generated nicknames. So, uh, you know, you've got some ball players, and I swear to God, they must have sat in the press box in Yankee Stadium in like 1950 and said, we can't just call him Mickey Mantle every game. 
what are we going to call him? Somebody goes, oh, let's call him the Mick. And then he becomes the Mick. And Joe DiMaggio can't just be Joe DiMaggio. He's got to be Jolt and Joe. Well, those are all like media manufactured nicknames. I've never really loved those. My favorite, my favorite nicknames are the ones that, and I liked how you said, you know, Millsy or Keener or JD, the initials ones. But my favorite ones are like, I love when John Garrett gets called Cheech. Mm-hmm. because he looks like Cheech Marin from right, Cheech right. and Chong, right? Right. So uh, to me, those are always the best nicknames because you know somebody called him that one day and somebody else said, my God, he does, he looks just like him. And that was it. He was Cheech for the rest of his life. And then yeah. some guys, which I still find this weird, they never get a nickname. I never called Harry Neal anything other than Harry. Did he mm-hmm. even have a nickname? I don't Pro- know. Probably not as a head coach, he wouldn't have because nobody on the team would have had the balls to to come up with a nickname for their head coach. But the ones I like are sixth generation of a nickname. We have one with the Carolina Hurricanes. Sebastian Ajo's nickname is Fishy. So where does that come from, you ask? Well, Sebastian became Seabass and Seabass became Fishy. Makes sense, right? So if you just hear Sebastian Ajo, Fishy, you're like, where did that come from? So I like the ones that have, you know, taken a couple of creative turns in the road. I've had a few. None of them really stuck. Uh, I worked with a guy, rodeo guy, Bob Tallman. We did the Canadian Finals Rodeo one year. Uh, Canadian Sports Network was really a division of Molson Brewery, and Canadian Finals Rodeo was a property. So did the CFR, and Tallman was our announcer. And we shot it all on site, and then we went back and cut it in post. And then Tallman came in and voiced it like he was voicing it live. And I'd have been 22, I guess, and a pretty strong vision about what I wanted, even though I literally knew nothing about rodeo when I started. And Bob decided he would call me Peckinpah, which was, (laughs) yes, a derivation of Sam Peckinpah, the famous director, uh, Wild Bunch, and a bunch of Westerns and stuff. So I worked with Bob in 84. And then in 85, we showed up for the CFR. And Bob wasn't there. Bob had hurt his back. And so we had to use a completely different announcer, an absolutely wonderful gentleman I am friends with to this day, Dave Paulson, also an author. I don't know how many books he's written. It's probably 15. Dave's going to be mad at me because it's probably more like 20. So we moved on from Tallman. Then five years, four years later, I'm doing the Bud Pro Rodeo Tour uh, with Ernie Afghanis, and Bob's going to be our announcer. And Bob doesn't even come to the rodeos. Bob just shows up for The Voice in Calgary, and I walk in, and he just looks at me and yells, mm. Beckenbaugh! <laughs> and it was like five years. And I'm yeah. like, seriously, oh, yeah. Bob? Yeah. Five years, and you pull mm-hmm. that out? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. As soon and as he yes, sees your face, you're Peckinpah. That's it. The other nickname I used to get a bit was mostly from Chris Cuthbert, the double C. He used to call me Legend. He still does. I don't know why. There may be some sarcasm involved, uh, Legend in my own mind. Uh, I doubt it with Chris, but it's entirely possible. I've never delved into it. I've never tried to figure it out. Okay, Steve, your favorite nickname, go. In TV, uh, I worked with a guy named Beaner. And I had no, it's what you alluded to earlier. I had no idea what his first name was. One time, (laughs) one time. So stupid. Uh-huh. In fact, I'll tell you how I found out. Hockey Night in Canada used to run credits on slides from the mm-hmm. plant. You yeah. didn't run credits from the truck because the character generator couldn't do it. So my name comes up, producer Steve Lansky, and I'm like, cool. And then director Brant Haywood. And I'm like, that's your name, Brant? So we go, for a, <laughs> we go for a drink after. And I'm like, why does everybody call you Beaner? And he says, one time I was in Winnipeg 
not very old, working in a station. And for lunch, I went out and played squash or racquetball. I can't remember what he said. He probably said squash. And he said, at one point, the guy I was playing with absolutely drills one right off my head. I mean, yeah. drills me. Yeah. I'm down like a sack of potatoes. And I go back to work and I'm a little bit late because I'm dazed and woozy. And I go into the boss's office and the boss looks at him and says, what happened to you? He says, I'm playing racquetball. And he says, oh, you got a knot in the bean, eh, beaner? <laughs> and that was it. That wow. was his nickname for the rest of his life. I work with a guy out of Calgary who's you know, one of the best statisticians in live TV sports. His name's Dave Moyer, and his nickname's Moisty. I don't want to know how he got it. I, haven't, I just don't want to know. I mean, I'm best, best friends with him, but to this day, I have not asked him how did he get his nickname. So today we've got John Forsland and Pierre Maguire on the show, and you, you know them both pretty well. Yeah, uh, uh, long-term relation, uh, you know, work relationship with Pierre. Uh, we date back to like the mid-2000s. I actually directed Pierre's first ever TSN broadcast, was, which was a Hockey Canada event, the Royal Bank Cup in Flin Flon, Manitoba. So I, I go back to TSN event one with Pierre, um, and we've done hundreds of NHL games together. We went on a run of, uh, of about 10 World Juniors championships together. Uh, and currently, uh, I'm on John Forslund's crew with uh, Carolina Hurricanes on Fox Sports Carolina. So John and I have uh, been together for 82 games for the last, well, 62 this season, but 82 the last season. So spend a lot of time with John and uh, just we just live about 15 minutes apart from each other here in the, in the Raleigh-Durham area. Um, I don't get to see John very much, and especially lately, because um, uh, when the NHL took its pause, John had a bit of a COVID scare. Um, we were on a four-game road trip um, at the beginning of March. We had played on Long Island, uh, played in Pittsburgh, played in Detroit, and then we had traveled to Jersey to play in New Jersey. And that game, that, that New Jersey game never happened because the NHL announced its pause at that point. And the reason being was the NHL had just taken its pause the day before. And the reason for that was the, that... Sorry to correct you. The NBA had taken oh, its sorry. pause the day before, That's right? correct. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So the NBA had taken its pause. And the reason for that was one of the, the first uh, player had tested positive in the NBA, and that was uh, Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz. So we quickly did the math in our hotel in Jersey City saying, well, the Utah Jazz had just played in Detroit. And, and, and we actually stayed in the same hotel as the Jazz. It's the Western Book Cadillac. It's the team that all the pro teams a hotel that all the pro teams stay at in Detroit. And so we were, uh, we were all sitting in the lobby, basically, the hotel in Jersey City. And uh, Mike Sundheim, the uh, Canes director of communications, uh, came up to John and said, uh, you, know, you know, can I see you for a second? We had just got received word from the Weston in Detroit that you had occupied the room that Rudy, Rudy Gobert had occupied. Forsland was in his room. Yeah, he actually Holy stayed cow. in in the same room. Holy cow. Um, so, yeah, so that was, so right away, John went in, right away, you know, John was asked to sort of go into self-isolation. So on the, the, uh, the bus ride from the hotel to the, to our charter, because we, we, our game in New Jersey hit, that night had been canceled. We were on our way back to Raleigh. John sat alone at the back of the bus, uh, sort of sequestered in isolation. And then on the charter home, he sat up in the first class cabin alone with, you know, good separation of rows between him and everybody else on the charter. So it was kind of scary. And then he isolated for 14 days when he got home to Raleigh. Thank goodness uh, he never showed any symptoms. And, he, you know, he, he was he was 
fine and he's in perfect health now, but it was, it was a very scary time uh, for John. So that does not sound like a very pleasant 48 hours. I'm glad you guys got through that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So joining us on inside the truck right now, our very first guests, uh, John Forslund. He's the play-by-play voice of the Carolina hurricanes. He formerly was the PR director of the Hartford Whalers in the NHL, went on to become their play-by-play voice. And almost every year, maybe it is every year, Paul, wins the North. Is it every year? It's Well, it's been the last two years running. So That's good enough got, for he's me. He's got a streak going. The North Carolina Sportscaster of the Year. And, Paul, here's John Forsland at work. Here comes old Willie. He's got a chance to do it again. Justin Williams, mano a mano on Fleury. He scores! Hey, hey, what do you say? The Canes get it done. Win the game. Six to five on the shootout goal. The third this season for Justin Williams. And also with us, Pierre Maguire, who won two Stanley Cups with the Pittsburgh Penguins once in 1991 as a scout when Bob Johnson was the head coach and then when Scotty Bowman took over the bench because of Bob Johnson's illness. Uh, Pierre Maguire was an assistant coach with that team. He's head coach the Hartford Whalers in the NHL. He's been the radio analyst for the Montreal Canadiens. He's worked on the NHL on NBC, and you probably first saw him here in Canada uh, when he worked on the NHL on TSN. John, Pierre, thanks for uh, taking the time to join us on Inside the Truck today. First question for both of you, uh, and John, you can lead us off. How have things been going for you uh, since the pause and, uh, and during the pandemic? Well, thanks for having me, Chop. It's uh, you know what uh, we we try to be positive here, and uh, in a very uh, negative circumstance and and a scary circumstance at times. But we're doing okay. Um, everybody's health here with my family is a hundred percent, thank God. And we're just uh, looking for the blue sky on the other side of this thing, and hopefully getting back to normal. But uh, in a long haul, and a little bit of a you know scare at the beginning with an exposure situation for me, but. We got through that, and uh, we'll see what happens. And Pierre, for you? It's been a unique time, no question in my life, in the history of the National Hockey League. But, uh, you know, right now, so far, everybody's been good in my family. My brother Ryan had a 15-day battle with the virus and uh, got through it. My sister Renee had a nine-day virus battle, and she got through that. And they lost one of their coworkers uh, Mm. at their store, which wasn't very good. Uh, who passed away from Corona or COVID-19. And my 83-year-old mother sitting in Montreal, she's tough as all get out in her apartment. (laughs) And uh, every morning she goes out for a walk, but that's about it. So it's been a unique time. There's no question. Probably the best thing that's happened to me is being able to be a dad and a husband, which is something I'm not usually able to do at this time of the year. Uh, So I really appreciate that time with my family. Do you guys think there's any chance we don't play again this year? We're going to play again, right? I don't know. I, I think we are. I think that's what they, they hope, and I think that's what they're planning for. But I don't know how anybody can watch all of this and say definitively that it's 100% go time. I, I think what's happened here, Steve, is as we get closer now with the calendar, we're going to get into a, um, a world of reality, either or. Yes, full on, here we go with this resumption of play, or is the best bridge to the next season with fans to get to a regular season that makes sense. Um, And then to give the guys an opportunity to train and be ready to play and let the league reset its business. And I felt all along that that's a distinct possibility. And for me, I don't think that's gone away. What do you think, Pierre? 
You know, Steve, what John just said was so eloquent, and I would agree with everything that he said wholeheartedly. Here, here are the things, so as I see it, there are a lot of hurdles that the league has to jump over. Uh, number one is uh, what happens with the European players and how are they going to get back. Secondly, what happens with the self-quarantine in Canadian cities? Six of the seven Canadian marketplaces are going to have teams in this tournament. They're going to have to quarantine their players for 14 days minimum. Uh, that's not going to change. So that's a big question mark. John talked about hard dates. I would agree with those hard dates because it's a very real issue. I don't think I, – I personally believe if they haven't started the season by, October, or by August the 1st, I don't know how we can play this year, not based on – starting and having a full 82-game schedule next year. I really think the drop-dead date, if they're not playing by August 1st, we got a problem. If we do return to play, obviously, it'll, as we all know the format, it's two hub cities, 12 teams per city. And broadcast-wise, they will have to keep things to a minimum. I know that there have been no hard and fast decisions made by NBC, by Sportsnet, certainly across the regional level as well, in terms of what those, that scenario will look like. But one thing that has been mentioned is that it would be a host feed that would be provided from the two hub cities. John, have you ever called games like this before off a host feed uh, looking at a TV monitor somewhere else? Yes, as uh, Pierre and I did, uh, I think we did a really good job with it, Pierre. I know you'll say yes to this, and, and you should. <laughs> But I happened to, uh, it was the first Friday in November from Stockholm. Uh, we did Buffalo and Tampa Bay. And I just happened to watch a little bit of it the other day just to see. And we did the best we could. Let's just qualify all of this by saying let's hope this is never the norm moving forward. I don't care what the reasons are. I think we have to be in buildings, technicians, talent. We have to be in buildings. You have to be able to be there to really capture it for the fans and do it correctly. But you, you can make it work. I think the world feeds have, have become a lot better than they used to be. And uh, when you have a great analyst like the guy we're with here this morning, um, he can fill in the blanks and tell you why and how better than anybody, even under those circumstances. But his hands are tied. He's really just going off whatever he sees in the spur of a moment. And, and I mean this sincerely. He's a rare talent that he's able to, to do something like that. Not a lot of analysts will be able to adapt to it. Play caller-wise, I can do it. Um, it's not the best. I can't anticipate plays. I don't feel any energy really sitting in a room. Um, I cannot see the officials clearly. Oftentimes they're out of frame. I miss delayed penalties. I don't see the arm go up. So then you end up looking like you don't know what you're talking about or somebody else figures out you're not there. And that's the danger. Chop, I got to tell you this. I'm so proud of that game that John Forsen and I did November the 1st from uh, Stockholm with Buffalo. Um, and the way in Tampa. And, I, and I'll tell you this, that Friday, as soon as the game was over, John knows I got in my car and I scrambled to drive four and a half hours to get to Hamilton, New York at Colgate University, where my son is committed to play college hockey. And I was speaking at their silver puck dinner on Saturday night, but I wanted to watch them play Yale on Friday night. So I was scrambling out. I got to Colgate, but I didn't make the game because I got stuck in traffic. But that night, I was at the golf course at Colgate. I'm not kidding you, at a reception. And people were like, how did you charter back from Stockholm so yeah. quickly? They said, now, did John – and they kept saying, did John come on the charter with you? I said, no, we did not. I said, we actually called that in a studio in Stanford, Connecticut. And uh, I thought John did a magnificent job. I watched that game two or three times because there were players on – I had a bunch of Buffalo games coming up after uh, Buffalo had played in, in uh, Sweden. And I wanted to watch and break down some of their players. And I thought John was fantastic in that game. So I think you can do it. 
chop. I don't. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's that easy to do. I think it's a little bit more difficult than people think. Mm-hmm. And if I could just jump in quickly, yeah, uh, it won't be long here. But in no, that no, no. game, there was a there was a controversial hit involving Nikita Kucherov, I think it was, and Vladimir Sobolka, and it was way out of frame. Pierre's instincts told him it was coming. He had to analyze it. You know, you can't sit there as an analyst and wait for all these different angles. The fans want to know what you think right away, like an official. And he was all over it. But I will say that's hard to do time and time again, uh, especially where we have plays under review and we have high hits, late hits. You know, those are the things that when you're in the building, you get a feel. And the other thing, too, is when Pierre does his thing uh, inside the glass, he can feel the game. He can see the coaches, the body Mm -hmm. language. Mm -hmm. He can tell me when a team's quit, when a team's really going, when a team has life. You know, you you can't – it's too sterile, but we'll see what happens. So will you not be inside the glass at all, Pierre? You won't be in the rink either? Steve, I wish I had an answer for you. We don't know yet. Um, You know, I was told about a month ago uh, to be prepared to go back to work in July, and that once I got in the pod, I couldn't leave the pod. Um, and now I'm hearing that there might not be a pod for us to go to. We may be in Stanford, Connecticut, all of us. So we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. I think there's a lot of negotiations still to go through. John, say from our end with Fox Sports Carolinas, if we're doing this show, our show from PNC Arena, whether it be from a TV truck or whether it be from the Canes Vision Control Room, what, what, is, the, what is the toughest adjustments you guys have to make to be able to stay at the, the highest level of execution as you guys do perform uh, each, each broadcast? When you do it the first time or when you do it, you know, first few times, adrenaline kind of gets you through. But I think as you get deeper and deeper and you do it on a more repetitive basis, it's just harder to, to just stay within the realm of what you're supposed to do, which, again, is capturing emotion of the game, uh, telling stories, when you don't have a lot of access to the teams and, and the people in and around teams, that's difficult. Um, mechanics of what I do, uh, play calling wise, you just have to do it the best you can and, and, and play off your monitor. And if, if, you're, um, if you're good at this, you should be able to play off monitors anyway, because that's what we do. We just don't talk about what we see. We're, we're in sync with the truck. We're in sync with the producers and directors and everyone else and the tape room, and we play off of that. So it kind of feeds into our instincts a little bit that way. But hey, listen, you got to make it – if it does happen, we have to make it great, not just good. We have to make it great because the fans have an opportunity to consume this and finally find some joy in hockey again, and it's returned. So we'll make it work. It's just not optimal at all, in my opinion. You know, Steve Chop and Johnny, this brings me back to the late great Al Arbor when he used to say prior preparation prevents potential problems. So you got to be the most prepared person if you're going to be the analyst for a show like this. You've got to have background on every single player, what they were doing during the pause, how they responded to the conditioning levels of what's gone on with practices after the pause. Um, You've got to be patient in terms of giving your play-by-play man a lot of room to work because it's a different opportunity for him. It's not as easy as everybody thinks. Uh, as an analyst, you've got to trust the pictures that are being presented for you. Chop, that's where an unbelievable director really comes in. Uh, and you've got to listen to your producer, because your producer is going to have some inside knowledge in terms of what the replay sequences are going to be. So while you may want it to be a certain way, it might not come out the way you want. Yeah, yeah. So patience is going to be important, giving your play-by-play man a lot of room. 
and more than anything else, be really thoroughly prepared. And I think if you do that as an analyst, you'll have a better opportunity to be good at it. So how can you be prepared if you don't, let's say just spitballing, you don't have access to coaches and you don't have access to players, not just on the phone or via Zoom, but even eye to eye, like you glean a lot of information from that, right? It's a great point, Steve. Um, in terms of preparation, uh, my iPhone still works. I can contact any coach in the league. I can contact a lot of players in the league, all general managers in the league. Um, they're very hospitable. The one thing, and Johnny can speak to this because of all the games we've done together, whether it be playoff games or unique games like being in the, in the studio in Stanford, um, the spirit of cooperation between the players, the coaches, and the managers with the analysts and with the play-by-play people in the league is outstanding. Better than at any time, I can tell you. I've been in the league over 30 years. I've never seen a more uh, uh, encouraging group of people than our players and our, and our coaches in terms of spirit of cooperation. So I don't think that will be a problem, getting information. No, it won't. And, and the other thing that happens, and I know it is when the two of us work together, whatever happens, you know, in those two and a half to three hours that we're on the air, is just an extension of what we've talked about that day and hopefully mm-hmm. the night before at least. Yeah. And Pierre and I's case, we absorb a lot and he's great at it in terms of, you know, find, figuring out different storylines that we may get to, but also being able to adapt on the fly, which is the real key in this situation. Being able to take yourself somewhere, which gets to your preparation, which gets to your your chemistry between uh, talent and also the, the technicians and people you're working with. So it relies heavily on that. So if you have a good working environment, you should be able to pull it off and you should be able to do a really good job with it. But there's also a built-in chemistry, like when I do work with Pierre, we kind of know each other now, where we're going to go. I know where he's going. I think he can anticipate me. And it's an extension of our relationship, what we do on the air, and, and his relationships he has with so many people around the league. Hey, I just want to jump in there. One of the things that I think has been so great for me is I worked with John when I was coaching in the league. And we had a team kind of a structure with our group where everybody was listened to. And I think that builds an amazing amount of chemistry. And for me, working with Johnny and Hartford was great. But even after, when I left Hartford and went to Ottawa, I still talked to John. I still talked to, you know, Chuck Caden. Those are relationships that you build. And, and so I think that helps the chemistry significantly. And then, you know, being in this type of a business, John and I have done, I don't even know, Johnny, a couple hundred games, maybe more. I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and big one, big playoff game. And so – I never really have to rehearse with John. John and I just talk all day long and we just take it for granted that we know what each other's going to think. I was just going to say, it's funny because somebody will say, don't you have to prepare for something? And I'll say, I've been preparing the last three days in my head. And that's exactly what you guys do every time you talk to each other, right? Absolutely. 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 Never never stops. You never drop it either. Um, It's a little different now because of the pandemic, Mm. but it's a 12 month cycle now. So we'll go away in the off season and be with our families. There might be a month or so or two months, whatever. But when we do reconnect again, you know, we're, we're still on top of it. We try to be at least because if you drop it, not everybody operates this way either. Um, We both have the same philosophy. We watch hockey as much as possible. I'm not sure anybody watches more than Pierre does. And it shows 
there are others who opt to go a different route. That's the different strokes mentality, right? But I, I think you have to be that way. 12 months a year now with all, if you're involved in a professional sport, it's a 12-month cycle. You know what's, what's amazing is uh, John just nailed that because if you're not watching a ton, you're not going to learn. And this right. is an ever-evolving league. And, uh, you know, I'll give you a case in point. Mike Babcock coached a certain way in Toronto. Sheldon Keith coaches a completely different way. So if you're doing a Leaf game and you think you're just preparing for the Mike Babcock coach Leafs, that's not happening. Peter Laviolette coached one way in Nashville. Johnny Hines coaches another way. So if you're not ready for that, that's a big, you know, you're going to have to be plugged in. I could say the same thing about Gerard Gallant and, and um, you know, Pete DeBoer in Vegas. So that's a big part of watching it. It's a huge part of it. And, and that's what I admire so much about John. I got to give you this one COVID-19 story. Johnny <laughs> talked about his scare at the beginning because of what happened on the road and how he had to self-quarantine. I called him every single day. And I'm sure he's like, stop calling me. But he never said it. I just wanted to make sure he was okay. But we talked about hockey. We, that's all we talked about. We talked about hockey all the time. Well, and your chemistry shows uh, on the air as well, too. You guys are amazing together. The NBC viewers are lucky for that. What do you think it's going to be like when we come back? Like, what kind of changes do you sort of foresee, you know, our bench is more of a sacred place now and not so much with media jammed in there and, you know, pregame and, and stuff like that, like, and just access to the players, access to the coaches, uh, creating a more sterile environment. What do you see uh, changes moving forward for NHL broadcasting? Well, it's an excellent question without an answer. I don't have the answer for that job. I, I don't know what it means because the more you try to get to 100% safe, 100% sterile, how do you how do you do that? Because normal life never used to be that way. Um, to be you know adverse to risk is uh, is hard to do. So that gets to my point before, which is what's the best way to move forward with this? Do you try to eliminate as much risk as possible so that you can get back there? You know, or does it make sense to have all of these restrictions almost to a point where it's impossible to work? I don't know what they're going to do with media. Who knows what they're going to end up doing with us? I just hope that, again, it's a bridge back to where it needs to be, not the way it used to be. I don't like the new normal talk. I know where it has to go um, and where life has to go, really. We have to get back to some, some human dynamics again because we, we've lost it here. That's really well said. The one thing I will say from having worked between the benches for a long time and behind the bench for a long time um, – it's not the most sanitary place in the world to work. <laughs> whoa, 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 wait a minute. So can you repeat that? I'm not sure I got that. It's not the most sanitary place in the world to work. There's a lot of spitting. There's a lot of nose blowing. There's a lot of screaming and yelling. There's a lot of blood. Um, it's messy down there. I'll be honest with you. It's not exactly the most sterile place to work. With CDC regulations and, and all that, it'll be interesting really to see, you know, how NHL teams and all pro sports teams are, are going to have to adapt to that. It'll be interesting. I agree. And how do coaches do interviews? Do we do coaches interviews? Are there going to be player interviews uh, after periods? Um, what's going to be the level of discourse? I heard something where the league was talking about not letting players talk to one another uh, on the opposition wow. teams. Wow. I don't know how that, how that plays out. What does that do to the intensity of a game? Mm -hmm. We talked about putting players in full face shields. Um, I'm not sure that's going to get very big acceptance from a lot of players around the league. So there, there's a lot of moving parts here, a lot, a lot of moving parts. 
John Forslund, Pierre Maguire, thank you so, so much for joining us inside the truck. We enjoyed it. Thank you, guys. Steve, Paul, thank you very much. Johnny, good seeing you. You looked up, Johnny. <laughs> See you soon, son, somehow. Somehow. Yeah, you will. <laughs> that was awesome. Those guys, uh, you know, from somebody who's done as many shows as I've done with both those guys, I can tell you firsthand that they are both as great a guy's off the screen as they are on. They're both two quality humans. So, uh, you know, we appreciate them joining us and being our first guests on Inside the Truck. Steve, now it's time for the Q&A portion of our show. What do you got today? I got a pretty good question. It's thoughtful. Maybe a little too thoughtful for the show, but we're going to give it a shot. It's from Morty. So you were the youngest producer ever in the history of Hockey Night in Canada. I was. Did you ever suffer from imposter syndrome? And thank God he explains it here. This is the deep thought portion of the show. <laughs> That's the feeling you get when you suddenly realize the gravity and importance of what you're doing and you wonder, what were they thinking putting me in charge of all this? I'm too young. I don't really know what I'm doing. You feel like an imposter in your role. Of course, you shake it off and continue on. And I wonder if you ever suffered that feeling. I like questions that make me think. And I thought of about 10 things I haven't thought of in about 40 years when I read mm -hmm. that question. Mm -hmm. I never felt that way in a truck. I felt that there were things I didn't know, but I never held that overwhelming feeling of what am I doing here? And right. I, think the, I think the reason why is because I relied on my hockey knowledge. And I remember thinking a few times, uh-oh, what's going to go? And I just would lean right on, just do the game. Just produce the game. Just do what you know. Just work the game. And that basically washed it away immediately. So I never felt that mm -hmm. in the truck. Mm -hmm. However, when I started with Hockey Night, I walked into the office in Calgary in September 83. And the first thing our senior producer, John Shannon, did to me was throw me some tapes and said, we've done a couple interviews. One's with Pete Peters, who was the goalie for the Philadelphia Flyers, and one's with Ron Flockhart. Flocky hockey was That's a big right. deal in Philly. Yeah, remember that? Uh, I remember was a that. big deal in Philly. So he throws me the tapes and says, we had these interviews done, and I can't remember who did them. I need you to cut them into two features. And I'm like, I don't even know where to start. I do not mm -hmm. even know where to start. <laughs> right. So the I don't know if anybody's got a feature, but so the first thing you do is you watch the interviews and basically you transcribe them. Certainly the ins and outs. Now I rate the answer between one and five if I'm doing something like that. But then I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So anyway, right. I do a paper edit, which basically runs down everything you want to do in an edit suite. And it's already on paper because when you go into the edit suite, now you're paying for minutes. So you don't want to waste that time. So mm -hmm. we finish and we're going to spend some money on this edit. So I fly to Edmonton from Calgary to a place called Video Pack. It was brand new. And we're going to cut this together into features. But the challenge came in that when I went through school, when a lot of us went through school in that generation, we edited with A-B rolls, meaning you put half your footage on the first tape, shot one, shot three, shot five, shot seven, shot nine. You put the other shots, two, four, six, eight, on the other tape, and you married them together with transitions. Transition, a way to get from one shot to another. For example, cut, dissolve, or wipe. But Video Pack used match edits. And it was a brand new kind of concept at that time. Yeah, uh-oh. <laughs> you can see where this is going, buddy. Uh, yeah. I, I, I have no clue. 
I have mm-hmm. no clue what we're doing. Nobody has ever explained to me what, what a match edit is. Right. Nobody has ever explained to me how a match edit works. And basically what you're doing is you're cutting from the same source to the same source. Mm-hmm. And it was so new that now you can do match edits if, if required. It's digital, so it's not quite the same. But when it was analog, there'd be no color shift or no video shift. But in those days, there was. Right. And, and so we spent hours trying to tweak these match edits at VideoPack because it was a brand new concept, a brand new technology. Mm-hmm. And I remember going through those two entire edits, not having a clue how the editors put this together. And it was embarrassing. Right. Yeah. And it was kind of humiliating. Yeah. And I went back to Calgary and I said, here's the finished product, but I really didn't know how I'd done it <laughs> because yeah. I hadn't done it. They right. had. Right. And, and yeah, and I kind of vowed at that point I was never going to be in that situation again. And I, I really wasn't. But that was that was embarrassing. It really was. You felt like an imposter. I did. I guess yeah. I felt like I, I'm not qualified for this in any yeah. way, shape, or form. Yeah. What Maybe am I, I didn't doing? Ask the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe I didn't ask the right questions. Right. Maybe I'd, I don't know. I, I just, yeah, that, that was a strange feeling. And I haven't thought about that in a long, long time. For me, uh, have I had moments of imposter syndrome? Yeah. Well, um, if you take a quick poll of all the NHL cameramen around the league, I think they'll probably all say that it happens for me every game. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, but seriously, like, I get a little bit of that every time just before at like 7.08 when they're about to drop the puck. I do get a little bit of that and a feeling. And and I don't know, you know, it's, uh, you know, 20 plus years later, I still get it. And I don't know if that's the little juice that, you know, the adrenaline that kicks in that allows me to elevate my game to be able to do it at the level that I do it at. But I do get a little bit of that. I, I, I can tell you like, recently twice the first game i ever directed with the san jose sharks on nbc sports california i had it and the first game with the carolina hurricanes on fox sports carolinas i had it because for me it was a new world a new producer a new you know a new crew new play-by-play guy new color guy there's new there's different terminology like canadian terminology for television is considerably different than it is down here in the united states so here was me like thinking okay i'm gonna I'm going to fake my way through all of this. Like, do I pretend to know how we're going to go to commercial? You know, we, we execute like a live rollout with a, with a piece of videotape, a highlight of say of a goal in a, in a fully packaged animation. I have no idea how to get there. So I would just look at the technical director beside me and say, Hey, when he calls for, you know, jumbo roll. Jumbo roll, an instantaneous video package used to go to a commercial break you just hit it. And I have no idea how we get the jumbo roll, but just go to it, you know? So yeah, do I I have them every day? And have I had massive ones recently? Yes. But I will tell you the biggest one that I ever had, I can uh, remember clear as day. Um, The year was 2008, Montreal, Quebec. Uh, I was in my hotel room, Sheraton getting ready. The next day was going to be TSN's first Grey Cup broadcast, the 96th Grey Cup from Olympic Stadium in Montreal. So I've been in I've been in lockdown all week. I did not leave my room, you know, for those of you familiar with Grey Cup week, there's, you know, um, you know, the spirit of Edmonton and there's the Lions Den and there's Ryderville and there's all kinds of trouble that you can get into easily if you just leave your hotel. I I I I elected that this is my first one and I better not screw it up. So I I locked myself down for a week. And so it was the Saturday night and it was around 8.30, 9 o'clock, and I had, had the do not disturb sign on my door all week long. Never took it off. No maid service. Dirty towels piled up in the corner. I just wanted to be alone. 
other than production meetings that I was forced to go to, I did not leave my room. Anyway, around 9.30, I get this little envelope that slides under the door. And I'm like, the hell is that? So I go over and I pick it up and it's from Toronto. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I open it up and inside is a letter from Scott Moore, who at the time is the head of CBC Sports Television. And I'm like, what, you know, what is this? You know, because TSN, this was their first broadcast. CBC had done it forever before that. So this was the first time that CBC TV Sports was not going to be doing the, the Great Cup game. So I opened it up and Scott went on you know, to say, hey, you know, it was a letter from Scott saying, you know, you know, all the best on the big game. You know, you're going to be great. You know, come a long way because Scott hired me back in the beginning, early days for me at TSN. So I had a relationship with Scott for, that had lasted a while. So the letter goes on to say that I am the only, I'm only the fourth director in the last 25 years to direct the Grey Cup broadcast, TV broadcast. And, and, that, and joining a pretty exclusive list of names that included Ron Harrison, yeah. Jim Marshall, yeah. And Ron Forsyth. Yeah. Okay. So all those guys, if there was a, t- if there was a hall of fame for Canadian sports television directors, those guys would all be first ballot guys. Um, needless to say, I didn't sleep well that night. And, uh, and as I laid there in my bed in the complete darkness, staring at the ceiling, listening to the spirit of Edmonton thump in the room below me, <laughs> I just thought, you know, I said, you know, do I, do I really, do I really deserve to be here right now? Do I really deserve to be sitting in the director's chair for the Grey Cup TV broadcast the next day? How many day? years had you been directing at this point? Oh, like I started directing uh, NHL in 99. So I'd been directing so for decade. nine years. Yeah, a decade. decade. Yeah, and, and wow. it's still. I was lying there thinking like, you know, was I, was I good enough to have my name join that list? You know, was I good enough to take the torch from those guys? And was I going to be able to, to, to do an equal job or raise the bar where they had left it off the year before? So although I, I wasn't officially diagnosed with, with imposter syndrome, I can tell you that that, that night I had it for sure. Um, and, and just to wrap up the story, you know, as far as the game went, it was the game went at warp speed. There was basically like no flags, no injuries. It probably took just over 60 minutes to play the entire game. And, and for me, my head was spinning the entire time. I felt like I was going down the Autobahn for the first time in a, in a Lamborghini. You know, like I just I had no idea if it looked any good or not. But uh, mercifully, the next day, the media critics, they always come out the Monday after the big game and let everybody know if they liked it or didn't like it. And they did like the show. It, it got glowing reviews in the paper. And so, you know, basically the, the, the sort of the theme was, you know, if there was ever any doubt that TSN could do the big game, there was no doubt any longer. And, and for me, there was no doubt in terms of my ability that, yeah, hey, I could do the big game. That's a great story. I've never heard that before. You know what I think makes it even tougher in live TV is there's no real time to reset. It's like rodeo. The shoot opens and you're on the bull for three hours and there's no way to stop it. Like you can't even take, okay, I'm going to center myself during this commercial break. You can't because somebody's going to ask you a question in the first four seconds and that's the end of resetting yourself. I never had that feeling that you're talking about. I do remember the night before my... (laughs) Why do I remember these things? The night before my first hockey night game, I think it was in Vancouver, Lanny McDonald is in the room next to me and we're at the Hotel Vancouver and I can hear through the wall. It's such an old hotel. I can hear yep. through the wall and yep. Lanny's talking to his grandfather. Oh boy. And I, I, I can't tell word for word, but I can hear him say, yeah, grandpa. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good, grandpa. And this was late and I'm trying to go to sleep and I don't get any sleep and I'm just lying there. And as you and I both know in live TV, thinking, not your friend. 
Yeah. So, yeah. Right. So I'm lying in bed and I'm thinking and I'm thinking and I'm thinking and I'm thinking. And I think I got about 14 or 15 seconds of sleep that night. <laughs> and I got up the yeah. next and I'm like, what yeah. the hell? And yeah. I almost went and knocked on Lanny's door and said, how's yeah. grandpa? Yeah, no kidding. And I yeah. was so wired that night and it, it just taught me the value of you got to get all your ducks in a row like you did for that week in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And it still didn't help because you got the letter and you panicked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what didn't help was I had the Spirit of Edmonton, which for those of you who are not familiar with the CFL or Great Cup Week, is the largest party in Grey Cup week. It goes from like noon or 11 a.m., whatever legally they can open, to like four in the morning when the cops show up and throw everybody out. So I had that going on underneath me. I was in lockdown. <laughs> it was a, yeah, it was, it, was, it was insane. Just a reminder, if you would like to be part of our Q&A segment, uh, hit us up on social media, at Inside the Truck on Twitter, at Inside the Truck Podcast on Instagram. Send us your best questions, regardless of topic, And if you're lucky to be chosen, you'll be part of our next episode. And if you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Share it with everyone you think might enjoy it. We'd sure appreciate it. I'm Steve Lansky. He's Paul Chopper Hemming. That's it for today. You keep listening, Baggotville, Quebec. And we'll keep bringing you Inside the Truck. 425 Squadron, three-wing CFB Baggotville. Woo!